Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM. This is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to Bridging Philly. The NAACP, one of the nation's oldest civil rights organizations, will gather in Atlantic City, New Jersey this summer for the first time since 1955. What has changed since then? And what has remained the same? We still have to make the caveat we have a long way to go. Our Newsmaker of the Week has been on the City Council in Philadelphia since 2016 and has made educating Philadelphia's children her top priority. We have an urgent need to revive America's teaching force. Our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week, Linda Shockley, sits with our Antoinette Lee to discuss the Peter Mott House. All of that is straight ahead on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Raquel Williams. The NAACP is one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the United States. It was founded in 1909 to advance justice for African Americans. Early members included Ida B. Wells, W.E.B. Du Bois, and leaders such as Thurgood Marshall and Roy Wilkins. In 1955, the NAACP National Convention was held in Atlantic City, New Jersey, 67 years later, it is making a return to the resort city this summer. What has changed since that last convention and what has remained the same? We'll discuss that and get into some details about what to expect from the convention with our guest, Atlantic City Council President Kaleem Shabazz. He is also president of the Atlantic City chapter of the NAACP. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Mr. Shabazz. Thank you so much. I am honored and privileged to to be here on this uh, show. Happy to have you. You know, I'm thinking about the fact that it's been 67 years since the NAACP came to uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey for their convention. And I'm thinking about all the things that have taken place over those past 67 years. Talk about some of the issues that were on the table in 1955 during that convention. That's a good question. Thank you. Uh, Well, uh, I think 1955, uh, we were looking at uh, schools. And the segregation question of schools, uh, question of segregation and integration. Uh, we were looking at housing, question of improving uh, housing stock. Uh, we were looking at police community relations and the question of uh, fair treatment of people of color uh, in the community. We were looking at uh, political representation and saying that we need to have more people elected at every level of, of government. Uh, we were looking at uh, um advancement in the workplace, saying that uh, we need to be able to go as far as our ability would take us in whatever field of endeavor that we uh, wanted to. Uh, We were looking at education inequalities, uh, saying that our schools needed to be better, uh, better funded, uh, better focused. We were looking at health disparities. Even then, uh, I think Dr. King made a statement about healthcare and how healthcare was an important uh, right. Uh, So those were some of the issues that we were looking at in 1955 as the NAACP converged uh, on the land scene. I think it's it's informative to tell the audience that not only Richard Nixon attended there, Thurgood Marshall, uh, of course, before he was on the Supreme Court, attended here in Atlantic City at the convention. So the convention has always been a place uh, that national figures have uh, come to uh, uh, express their thoughts 
and to uh, present yourself to the delegates. You know, I'm just thinking about some of those issues that you were talking about, health care and, and education and, and, and fair and affordable housing. 67 years later, Mr. Shabazz, we are still talking about and fighting for those very same issues. We certainly are. So much, much has changed, but it seems like much has stayed the same at the same time. Well, I, I, I'll quote Shakespeare. Uh, he says it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. And I think that sums up or can sum up where we're at. Uh, to say that there has been no progress made would not be accurate, and it would do a disservice uh, to those uh, civil rights heroes and sheroes who sacrificed and even gave their life uh, for the civil rights struggle. So it would be incorrect and inaccurate historically to say that we have not made progress. Uh, but I think it also would be uh, correct to say that we need to make more progress and we need to keep fighting and struggling and striving. And I think it would also be correct to say that um, those of us who have been in civil rights, we have to recommit, uh, redouble our efforts and bring in more people. I just spoke to a group, our local union here. Uh, they have a group called the Black Interest Group and they meet on a monthly basis. And I said the same thing. I said, now's not the time to drop off. Now's the time to drop on. It's not the time to get tired or get frustrated or throw your hands up and say, uh, there's nothing we can do. Uh, now's the time to redouble our efforts. And not just because it's African-American History Month, and I'm glad uh, we're talking about this in African-American History Month. Um, look at our people who came before us, uh, the men and women and the things that they endured and what they had to go through uh, just to survive uh, the physical mistreatment, maltreatment, terror, degradation, uh, humiliation uh, that our four uh, parents went through. Uh, so we here in 2022, uh, we can't stop now. We can't slow down. And we have to speed up. Uh, we have to increase everything that we're doing. And, and uh, if you look at all those areas that, that I just mentioned, there has been uh, some progress. In 1955, we did not have the number of elected officials that we have on the state, the local, uh, the federal level, uh, even school boards. Uh, so that has been a tremendous, tremendous leap forward. Uh, even though we still have questions and problems in education, look at the tremendous amount of African-Americans who have went to college, graduated from college, made uh, advancement in industry, uh, in uh, uh, sports, and entertainment, uh, have made great strides. Uh, look at the uh, people who have made made strides in other areas of industry in this country. Not enough, not finished by any stretch of the imagination. But I think if you'd have told delegates in 1955, standing in Atlantic City at the NACP convention, if you would have told them that there would have been a two-term president named Barack Hussein Obama, mm -hmm. they probably would have escorted you to the uh, room that they had uh, for first aid because they say this gentleman is faint. He's a uh, lightheaded because <laughs> he's talking about there's going to be a president right. named Barack Hussein Obama that's not going to get elected once, but it's going to get elected twice. I don't think that that would have been thought of as conceivable in 1955 right. and, and some of the many other uh, first that we have. You would have said that there's going to be a lady named Oprah Winfrey, who's going to be a billionaire, is going to have a, a nationally rated TV program. Uh, I don't think people would have said that that is even possi possible. In 1955, TV was just obviously just evolving. But right. then you would have said that there was going to be highly paid African-Americans in basketball and baseball and football making millions of dollars I know they wouldn't have believed you because in 1955, uh, African-Americans could barely get in pro sports. Uh, Jackie Robinson uh, had just uh, winding down his illustrious uh, career in baseball. Like right here in Atlantic City, we have two African-American women who's the president of our college, Atlantic Cape Community College. And we just had a, a president. She passed away, Vera Ferris, one of the first presidents of Stockton uh, University. If you would have said in 1955 that there would be African-American women who would be presidents of colleges and universities and that the vice president 
would be a African-American woman in 1955. I think Sister Williams, they would have said, you know, something is wrong with this guy. He he looks like he's all right, but he's not in reality uh, talking about what's happening in America. So I think we've lived to see a lot of uh, very, very positive things, a lot of uplifting things. Right. Uh, but but we still have to make the caveat. We have a long way to go. Wow, wow. You definitely did just outline some awesome strides that we were able to make. And, you know, and it's good that you did that because, you know, you don't want to sit here and just talk about all the wrongs and all the problems. There are some great strides that we have made and continue to make. So it's great that you point that out. There are a couple of things, though, that in 1955, I wanted to point out that still ring true today. And uh, one happens to be the interaction between law enforcement community and African-Americans and another uh, are voting rights. These are two things that are still uh, still something that we're struggling for fairness here. And I want to talk with you about the situation that seemed to turn a page in the country, it seemed to reach a fever pitch as far as civil unrest is concerned, and that was the the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer uh, in Minneapolis just two years ago. Right. That seemed like it was a major turning point for the first time, at least it felt to me. The world was able to see what we had been trying to say for the longest time. Now there were several incidents uh, with police and unarmed uh, men and women uh, that have been shot over the years. But this particular one, this was the one that made America, I think, look at itself. There were a lot of changes that came about, a lot of political correctness. I mean, I'm talking about from, you know, your syrup, your pancakes, your rice, you know, all of a sudden we're looking at everything going, maybe we shouldn't do this and maybe we shouldn't do that. So there seems to be a shift in the correcting, uh, a course correct, if you want to say it was the issue surrounding that particular incident. What do you say about that? Two things. The first thing, uh, that is such a disturbing incident to, to me. Mm-hmm. I really uh, don't even like to watch the video. I mean, obviously it happened. It shouldn't have happened. It was horrendous, heinous, uh, inhuman. Uh, and it just goes to show uh, how we have been thought of and, and treated uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, commonplace, that kind of activity in, during slavery and even after that, during uh, World War One and World War Two, when even African-American uh, veterans came back and were lynched and mistreated and beat and, uh, uh, in the South, the civil rights movement. But I, I think uh, this was so graphic uh, that uh, many people, and not only in the United States, there were uh, marches and demonstrations all over the world. Right. Uh, in Turkey and in India, in Brazil, yes. in, in Britain, in right. France, and uh, England, uh, people who just uh, saw the, it, it was a human thing to see a man begging for his life, yes. calling for his mother, and to be callously, uh, systematically killed like that uh, is just uh, heartbreaking. The second thing that, that I say every time I comment on this is we have to salute Black women because it was a young African-American sister who took the video of George Floyd uh, being murdered and uh, put it out. And I I believe that if she hadn't have done that, there's a good chance that there wouldn't have been the kind of reaction it was. Uh, People obviously were were outraged, but if they hadn't seen it, they just heard about it, I think they would have been outraged, but not to the level that they were when they actually could see it and could actually hear uh, Mr. Floyd's cries for, for mercy. To when history is written, this young sister is going to go down as a influencer. I think that's the term they use now. Yes. Because she took that video and she didn't have to do it. Right. She was just walking past. She wasn't involved. She could have kept going. She could have maybe uh, called some more police, although that's problematic. But she could have done a lot of things. But she stopped. She took the video. She persevered and she made sure that it got out. And I think that we cannot give her enough credit uh, for doing it. And I believe she's like 17 years old at the time. And and that, again, is important, I think, for for the history because it shows we've always had compassion for each other. Uh, And there were several other people, the gentleman, uh, the older gentleman, he was on the stands. He just broke down crying during the trial, Mm -hmm. said that he tried to tell uh, Mr. Floyd to try to not to struggle and 
it, it was just, it encapsulized our history in America, the brutality, the use of police as not enforcers of the law, but breakers of the law. And then the ones who didn't intervene, that reminds us of our history of lynching. Over 5,000 people lynched from about 1865 to 1955 without any convictions. And many times people in law enforcement were the ones, if not actively lynching people, being accomplices. So uh, that George Floyd, I think, in, I think all that sort of came together. The murder of Mr. Floyd, uh, at least in my mind, brought all those sentiments to the surface. And of course, it went across the country. And it's not over yet. The negative reaction that we're getting from forces who want to turn the clock back, who want to repress social change and justice is a result, I think, of that rising tide uh, that came from George Floyd. Uh, and, and, and it's good. People have been uh, woke is a bad term among our conservative mm-hmm. friends, but people have been woke and they see for themselves the manifestation of this treatment and, and they're never going to go back to sleep a, a, again. Right. I have to agree. And I do want to say here, um, Councilman Shabazz, because people tend to think this and the minute this comes up and you make a claim or point out police brutality, you know, that doesn't mean that you're anti-police. We're not anti-police. I'm not anti-police, but we are anti-bad policing. Things that you see, things of that nature where people, unarmed, innocent people uh, are, are losing their lives. So this has nothing to do with bashing police officers, although there are people that are probably going to see it that way, no matter what you say. I think the unfortunate part about the police is that in organizing, you, you have to be careful of words. Words make people. Words are very important. Words are very powerful. You and media, you, you understand that. When people said defund the police, I think if I could have advised them, I would say, brothers and sisters, you, you need to think about how that is going to play with people. And I think I understand what they mean. I think they're talking about making the police more accountable, making the police more representative, uh, making police community relations more transparent, uh, more humane. I think that's what they want to get to when they say defund the police. But the NACP, let me just say for the record, the NACP's national, state and local position is that we do not support the concept, the philosophy of defund the police. What we do support is that the police must be accountable. The police must treat people with equity and justice. The police must be inclusive. The police must be transparent. The police must be representative of the community that they serve. That's the NACP position unequivocally. And uh, we do not uh, stand for the position or the concept uh, that police are not necessary. Which we did have a society that police were not necessary. Unfortunately, if we're going to tell the truth about our communities, when I say our communities, about communities of color, there are people in our communities who do antisocial activities, who commit violence against their fellow community members, who do things that is not for the betterment and the uplift of people of color, and we must have a force to deal with that. Now, if they were unarmed and they didn't resort to violence and maybe they just used uh, a, a verbal language, then I would say we don't need an armed force. But you can see in any major city or area today, you see young children in crossfires. You see senior citizens in crossfires. You see our churches can't even have services at night because of, of, of crime across this country. Uh, so, no, defund the police is the wrong theme. It's the wrong thrust, and it gives our enemies a tool to beat us over the head with. Mm, mm, I understand what you're saying. And, um, you know, I think the term defund probably should have been reworded even, because I know there are some police departments. I know in uh, Austin, Texas, there's a model there. They're Mm -hmm. trying to really change the way they police there, you know, sending, uh, not sending an officer to a scene where, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a mental health issue, you know, sending someone there that specializes in that instead of 
an officer who could be responding to something else more, you know, where violence is concerned and send, sending the proper person to the scene. We have a program in Lang City where if people get, the police get a call and it's a mental health situation, we have mental health professionals who are embedded with the police who go on that call. And, you know, a lot of times uh, some of the African-American men, it's mostly men, sometimes it's women, mostly men, uh, African-Americans who get killed when these things escalate is mental health issues. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, we, we have that. We have another program in Atlantic City I'm proud to say. It's called Restorative Justice. A lot of times when people get stopped, traffic stops, they escalate. Uh, the uh, thing in the Midwest, that uh, gentleman, he had a, a weapon, but he, he was licensed. He got stopped by the traffic and the police officer ended up shooting and killing. Our police chief has uh, instituted a program where when the police officers stop people, they have to explain to them why they're stopped and give them a chance to interact and, and de-escalate. So there are, there's, there are ways that communities can be policed without conflict. And, and the uh, example is in suburban communities, mostly white communities. They have police officers. They don't stop and shoot people. They don't stop and kill people. If they have a, a, a mental health uh, issue, the person is, isn't uh, killed. So they there are ways, and, and that's my point in speaking to our police sisters and brothers, treat people in communities of color like you would treat your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your grands, and that will alleviate a lot of problems. Right, right. There, there is a lot of bias. Uh, many of it is probably unconscious bias out there. I'll say that to be fair. And, you know, you tend to wonder when will things truly change? And I, I think, and you can speak to this, it's not going to change until we're not seen as a threat. I mean, we're talking about our young girls, young girls being seen as, you know, older sexual beings. Our young boys are seen as threats with a water gun. Uh, our hair, unprofessional. We're just not seen as equal still. And I don't think there's going to be a change until we are not seen as a threat and we are seen as equals. And But I have to say, you know, regardless of all of the, the things that continue, we, we still manage to make those strides that you were talking about earlier. Well, you're right. I think that's our next struggle, and, and we're into that now. And we have a lot of allies. That's what I'm saying. When we look at the situation, sometimes it's dire, but I think there's a, a saying. I think I heard a preacher preach this. Sometimes it's, it's, it's darkest before the dawn. Mm. Uh, and uh, I firmly believe uh, that we are coming into an age where people will regard people of color uh, differently. And, and, and we regard it differently now in a negative sense, because as you said, uh, uh, youngsters, African-American youngsters, youngsters of color are viewed as more mature than they are, more violent than they are, uh, young women more sexual uh, than they are and older than they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have examples of that, that I would, I think about the young man in Ohio, he had a toy gun, the police come up, they get out and they shoot him within 30 seconds. Yes, to me, right. uh, and and uh, they wouldn't have done that, I don't believe, if he was not a young man of color, if he was a 12-year-old white boy with a toy gun, I believe they would have tried to talk him down because they would have seen when they saw this young kid, uh, if he was not uh, a person of color, they would have seen their ne- nephew or their son or, 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 or their grandson. And they would say, whoa, I'm not going to do this like this. Right. Uh, so we, we, I think that's part of our, our, our effort. And we have allies. I think it's part of our allies' effort uh, to tell their um, ethnic group, uh, the, their people in power, speaking truth to power, that African-Americans need to be treated with dignity and respect. And the George Floyd, I call it a movement, it, it's not a moment. It was a moment when that when it happened, when the murder happened, but the movement is people speaking to that in various ways across this country and, and really across the world. And like I said, it's not going to stop. Uh, and all the, the laws and uh, crazy rhetoric uh, that they talk about is not going to change. It. it is a movement that is not, it's like the tide coming in the ocean. You can't stop it. And and I don't believe that they're going to stop it. And I believe we're going to come to a day. Uh, I don't know when it's going to be, but I believe we're going to come to a day where our treatment will be much better and where we will be acknowledged uh, for the human beings that we are. Uh, I think that day is coming sooner rather than later. Okay. Okay. Let's hope that is definitely the case. 
Right. Let's talk very briefly before we, we want to I want to get into the convention and talk about all the things that are happening with the convention. But I did mention voting rights. It, it's a big political football made even more contentious by the previous administration. This is something that we are still fighting for in 2022. Why is that? That's a good question. Those of our people of color in the community, they say, and I know you've heard this, I don't vote because it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference who gets elected. Nothing changes. Uh, I think our uh, job is to show people that that's not a true statement. And how do we show it's not a true statement? What's one of the ways? The tremendous extreme efforts that people are taking to make sure we don't vote. The roadblocks, the hurdles, the obstacles that they're putting up to stop us from voting. If voting wasn't important, if it didn't make a difference, if it didn't change things, people wouldn't be spending multi-million dollars that these states are, are going through passing these laws, passing these regulations, passing these procedures, running for office so they can control elections if it didn't matter. It matters. It makes a difference. And we just have to communicate that to people of, of, of color, uh, people who are down, downtrodden, uh, people who, as they say, are locked out of the corridors of power, uh, people who are uh, scraping day to day, people who don't have the benefit of looking at voting and civic participation from a uh, intellectual level or from a 30,000 foot level, uh, people who are uh, uh, trapped uh, in uh, communities of poverty all across this nation. And, and that's the job. And that's what we have to keep, keep working to let them know a change uh, can come. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not like on television when it comes to a 28 hour 28-minute show, is you have the opening in the middle, and at the end, everything is rosy. It's not like that, uh, but it is worth it. And if I could just link people, and I, I tell people, if it didn't matter who got elected, why would people spend millions of dollars to put people in office or to stay in office once they get in office? And, and it's just making that connection to people, showing them that uh, who is elected matters, uh, that it matters in their everyday life. And then that's what we we have to connect people with, that it matters in their everyday life, uh, their rent, uh, their school, community safety. Uh, all that's important and all that has some connection to who's in government and who's in power, and who's making laws and rules and regulation. The banking, uh, the ability to, to get loans and capital to go in business, uh, the ability to buy a house, ability to, to go to a, to a school and, and get educated. All, all that is it has something to do with the system that we have here in, uh, in the United States and really all over the world. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah. Let's get into the convention. The convention is coming to Atlantic City this summer. Give us all the details, when it is, how long it is, and what we can expect. Okay, first of all, let me invite everyone uh, to invite everyone. Come to Atlantic City, July 12th to July 20th, this summer, in Atlantic City is the National Convention of the NAACP. We are so proud. We are so happy. Uh, We are looking forward to it. It is going to be great, as some of my young uh, members say, on and popping. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're looking to have about 8,000 delegates from all over the country. We're going to have a couple of parts. We're going to have a, a session from about the 10th to the 12th of July, where young people from all over the country are going to vie in uh, theatrics and science and STEM. That's a part of our convention. And we are expecting the president to come. Uh, We're expecting the vice president to attend. Uh, And I'm expecting uh, our governor, of course, to attend, our U.S. senators, congressmen, uh, business leaders, educational leaders, law enforcement leaders, and it is going to be an exciting, exciting event, many uh, exciting workshops. We have an organization called Next Gen Leadership in the NACP. It's a national organization of young people, 18 to 35, uh, young uh, professional leaders from across the country. Uh, they're going to have a session with a play, uh, organization called Noble, which is the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Officials. Uh, and their activity is going to be uh, the Black community and law enforcement. 
uh, that's going to be at Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. And um, that is going to be something that we're going to invite uh, young people to. We're going to have a special effort, a special effort to uh, involve 300 young people from the Atlantic City area uh, in the convention uh, as delegates. Uh, when we want them to see uh, civil rights and social justice leaders, we want them to be plugged into positive, other positive young people from across the country. And we think we would be derelict in our duty uh, to have people come from all over the country and not have our young people impacted. Uh, and the next thing also we want to do is to uh, provide a forum for black businesses uh, to thrive. Uh, we have a lot of our local businesses, our local restaurants, and even our barbershops, in case uh, somebody wants to get uh, uh, shape up a haircut, our beauty policy, if, if uh, some of the sisters want to get uh, their hair done. Uh, we want to make sure after this convention leaves that our young people will be energized, that our businesses will receive some benefit, and that thirdly, we will uh, uplift uh, social justice and civil rights uh, for us to move forward because we have some dark days ahead if we don't get ourselves together. Uh, we have midterm elections that are coming and we have to uh, be ready. And, and that's what the convention is for, to put a platform, a highly visible platform, civil rights, social justice activities that NACP is, is leading in and, and to beat back some of the uh, voting rights uh, excesses that has captured this country and has uh, gotten people on the reactionary side who want to roll back our progress. And it's not going to happen, but the only way that we ensure it doesn't happen is that we organize, that we mobilize, uh, that we're registered, uh, that we vote intelligently and we vote our interests. The NACP does not endorse candidates. Let me just be clear on that. Uh, but the NACP does encourage civic uh, involvement. Uh, I'll quote uh, Perrin Mitchell, who was a congressman from Baltimore, Maryland. It's Perrin Mitchell said, no permanent enemies, no permanent friends, only permanent interests. And that's where we are at. We are not wedded to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. We are wedded to people who are for the interests of communities of color. If they are for us, we are for them. Uh, if they're for our progress and our betterment and our uplift, we are for them and we will support them and we want them to support us. We've been visiting with Atlantic City Council President Kaleem Shabazz, also president of the Atlantic City chapter of the NAACP. Mr. Shabazz, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Since joining the Philadelphia City Council in 2016, she's led a human rights agenda focused on the city's youth. And as chair of the council's Children and Youth Committee, she has made public schools a priority. Charity Howard speaks with Helen Jim. Philadelphia public schools have struggled for decades, desperate for funding to repair buildings, to afford books, and even staff. Now a new hit television show, Abbott Elementary, created by local comedian Quinta Brunson, addresses those very difficult topics while celebrating women of color and teachers through laughter and honesty. And City Council member Helen Gim, an outspoken champion for both Philly students and teachers, is shining a light on Abbott Elementary and Quinta Brunson in a very special way. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Council Member. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shara. Now, you say the show, it couldn't have come along at a better time. Abbott Elementary is the best show on television. It is the best show that represents Philadelphia, the one that represents the heart and love that our city has for its teachers, its schools, and for the things that make us uniquely, you know, a city of, you know, of hope. And Quinta Brunson crafted a love note to every single Philadelphia teacher and young person and family member out there who's working so hard to make childhood joyful and learning possible. And recently, you and your fellow council members have decided to recognize the show in a really interesting way, an effort initiated by you. So city council often does honorary resolutions um, to honor, you know, different individuals. But to me, like a resolution is a chance to tell a Philadelphia history because it is part of the history of the city. It's about remembering people, places and moments um, that that make Philadelphia special and remind us that we're we're like here in this incredible moment together. And, you know, we introduced, well, first of all, I was excited about Abbott Elementary from the moment it was announced. And, you know, to be clear, there's certainly a little bit of skepticism because um, it's hard to write about struggle. It's hard to write about it from the aspect of teachers. 
Um, it's hard to bring hope and joy to things that often feel like they're a place of struggle and sometimes feel very intractable, like things don't change and things don't move. And so, of course, like, you know, from its launch, there's a lot of questions like, would uh, Quinta Brunson avoid some of the problems of, um, you know, the Philadelphia public schools? Would she hype up, you know, personal drama and make it more about characters rather than the environment that, um, surround things? How would young people and children, and especially in their parents and family members, play a role in this story? And then, of course, most importantly, like, how are we going to talk about education and teaching in this day and age when, you know, it feels like all of the culture battles, all of the political battles are really coming right home about schools, um, about education and learning. And of course, it's about young people. And I think like from the moment it aired, there it was so clear what quinta brunson wanted to do she was not going to back away from any of the struggles she wasn't going to hide the underfunding she wasn't going to hide the struggles she wasn't going to hide the you know kind of um various shall we say uh personalities that make up a complicated social endeavor like schooling she was instead going to bring all of that together but tell it through the eyes of perhaps like the most earnest, hopeful individual possible, Janine, um, a young teacher that many of us saw ourselves in, um, and, and do so with just tremendous amount of caring and love and an uplifting of teachers, especially, and black teachers in particular, um, in schools, no matter where they may be. And I think by doing this, she spoke to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher teaching in the middle of America, if you're at a wealthy um, suburban private school, or whether you are teaching in the heart of, of public schools facing like enormous struggles. The love, the caring, the experience, and the expertise that she has for teachers and the transformative uh, impact that they have on young children at the most important times of their lives is universal. And I think that's why Abbott Elementary resonates because it wasn't about a perfect school and perfect people being perfect. It was about hopeful people coming together in difficult times, in imperfect circumstances, and still doing something extraordinary because they loved kids and because they loved teaching. So this show is laughing through the pain. It's really recognizing all of the truth telling here, but also it's speaking to an era in both politics and education. And as someone who was in education for as long as you were, you say this really speaks to you as well. Yeah. And especially I think she's speaking to teachers. First of all, Abbott Elementary could not come at a more important time because we have an urgent need to revive America's teaching force. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine how much teaching has been maligned and um, sort of like forced into the margins by the political and cultural debates of the last 10 years. But here's a really good example of what kind of impact that has had. In 2010, uh, Pennsylvania issued more than 21,000 new teaching certificates. And this is for new teachers who are coming in to teach in Pennsylvania. In 2020, the number of teaching certificates issued to new teachers was barely 6,000. That is a tremendous drop. And what that means is, is that teaching as a profession, teaching as a career is very much on a nice edge. We struggle to fill um, positions in the Philadelphia public schools. We struggle to get substitutes all across Pennsylvania. We do not have enough school nurses, school counselors, school psychologists, young uh, people who are willing to teach special education. And so Abbott Elementary comes at this time when a lot of school districts and people are making choices about education, which, you know, to be clear, was one of the jobs that I think to this day was still the most important work I've ever done in my entire life, including the job that I currently have. Being a teacher was that meaningful, that transformative. And what she's doing by presenting this portrait of, you know, not 
like extraordinary, like kind of superheroism, but everyday extraordinary efforts that are made and done um, by individuals in our schools is she's reminding people what a joy it is to be a teacher, how transformative it is. And I personally believe that she is a one woman um, campaign and uh, juggernaut um, for bringing teachers and young people back into the teaching profession, reminding people and honoring lifelong career educators um, who stayed uh, in their schools year after year. She named Abbott Elementary after one of those teachers, you know, her sixth grade teacher who transformed her. And I think she's doing the same right now, that she is going to be the reason why we have a new generation of career teachers who, who feel like this work is more than just a job. It's a transformative way to um, just, you know, like feel so deeply valued and to transform um, a young child's world. So this resolution was not just about shining a light on Abbott Elementary. It was about shining a light on teachers and the impact that they can have on a student's life. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that Abbott Elementary's resonance is not happening only because it's a great show, which to be clear, it's a great show. It's hilarious. It's a 30 minute sitcom that will absolutely bring joy to your life every Tuesday night. But it's also landing at a point in um, Philadelphia's history and in American history, where we have a lot of choices to make about education. And that's why I think Abbott Elementary is worthy of a resolution, a formal resolution, a formal honoring in our city council body, and to be inscripted into Philadelphia history as a show, you know, a black and female led Hollywood star who is also present in a historic moment in time. And I think doing as much as she can to really influence the trajectory of where we're going to go as a country around teaching and education. Philadelphia, like many cities across the nation, are having issues with regard to funding public schools. But here in Philadelphia, we have a uniquely profound problem. Yes, absolutely. I mean, right now, as we speak, um, there is a trial going on in the Commonwealth Court about the unconstitutional deliberate underfunding of public education across the state of Pennsylvania. And so we don't need, um, you know, to be clear, a trial to tell us what that looks like in Philadelphia. It means that our buildings are 70 years of age and can have lead, asbestos, and mold. It means that our kids go to classrooms that are um, severely overcrowded, that, uh, you know, that we are short on essential counselors and staffing in our public schools. It means that we struggle to get arts and music in every public school. And at the same time, none of this has dampened the spirit and the love that we have for our children, for public education, and for our educators. It means that we are doubly and in fact you know, like overwhelmingly more dedicated to seeking solutions and to being, um, you know, deeply committed to the cause of raising up our schools because we're raising up our young people, we're raising up communities, and ultimately we're raising up Philadelphia's future. Um, so, you know, this, this uh, urgent story about the underfunding of schools, but told through an eyes of love and hope and change, the need, the urgent need to change the situation um, comes through Abbott Elementary, but most importantly is echoed every single day in thousands of classrooms all across the city of Philadelphia. You know, I completely get it. I went to public schools my entire life. I went to Elwood, Greenfield, and then Girls High, and then right after that, I went to Temple. This has been an ongoing issue for Philadelphia since as long as I can remember. And similarly, you are personally invested as well. You started out your adult career in education. So has this always been your focus? Yeah, I mean, you know, I started out as a young uh, public school teacher here in Philadelphia as well. Well, much like um, Janine uh, back in the day, I I stayed up for 48 hours to write a set of grants that would get my kids a rug. Um, I, you know, uh, I remember in September um, going around and picking up all the little baby pools that people threw out at the end of summer so that we could fill them with dirt and build gardens uh, for our kids to have. 
Um, you know, the love and the joy of education and teaching and childhood, most importantly, um, really just shines through. I think one of the things that means the most to me, though, about doing this work, because, you know, to be clear, it's been a lifelong mission of mine. And I, I, I don't think I ever left my days at Lowell Elementary School in Olney um, and those, you know, young fourth and fifth and sixth graders there who honestly transformed my entire life my way of looking at the world. Um, I never left those roots. But I think, you know, what what I think a lot of people see when they um, see this is that they only see like pain and struggle and hurdles that seem insurmountable and like crises and all of this. But what I love so much about Quinta Brunson and what she brings to this is that um, the thing that people don't understand, like, why are you still in this? Why do you see yourself in different iterations for starting out as a teacher, then working in the school district and writing curriculum or doing professional development training for teachers or becoming a city council member um, to change the way the city was going to look at education? There is one reason, and it's because the people who are invested in this work are the most beautiful, hopeful, brilliant um, dedicated people that you can possibly imagine. And that Quinta Brunson is reminding us that this grand social experiment called public education or writ large like society is done not through policies and laws, but actually done through the hard work of people coming together and reminding ourselves, we are actually in this together. And the joy, the hope, the love that we bring into this work each and every day, the persistence of your Barbara's, um, the creative, uh, you know, like uh, resources of your Melissa's, um, the genuine like naivete, but just, you know, good heartedness of your Jacob's and your, um, you know, the new guy who shows up and has all these new skills and thought he was just going to be there for a moment to substitute in, but actually may in fact dedicate their lives. That is a story of like, I feel like that is this thing that has driven me all my life through the public education world, that it was never this thing that felt like it was a drag or a pain. It was um, this thing that only propelled you through difficult times because people were so full of hope, because they were so creative and surprising, um, because education every day is an ode to childhood and the joys of a young person who wakes up every day to literally a brand new day, a brand new, um, opportunity to become who they want to be. And like that level of joy and love and possibility and this belief actually like truth that every day could be different. Like every day that we persist in something that we truly believe in or try to challenge an injustice that can no longer stand is a new chance to like see something new come alive. Um, and so that's that's what I really love the most about Abbott Elementary because it really brings a sense of joy of, you know, of, of tremendous amount of love. You can just feel it like flowing through all of the characters, how they talk to one another, how they approach situations and that they're in it. They're in it for the long haul because it's their city, because it's their school, because it's about each other. Um, and to me, that is the most Philadelphia thing of all. So it's really about hope. Yeah. And just reminding ourselves that it's not this like, you know, hope um, is not some kind of, you know, like Pollyannish thing or something you just like a child's level naivete that you bring to it. But it's a persistent practice. It's like the way we talk to one another, the way we remind each other, the way we come to school every day, the way we remember something that we we knew we could always bring to this conversation or to this work. Um, that's what hope really means. And you just see it so much in in her work. I think not even beyond Abbott Elementary, I think she just brings so much joy and so much of Philadelphia into it. Thank you so much for joining us. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia. And since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. 
The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. Okay, what up? It's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Now, I had the opportunity to visit this place a couple of months ago. It's right across the bridge from Philly. It's a place called Lawnside, New Jersey. Now, many people may not be familiar with this small town. It's actually less than two square miles, but this place holds a lot of history. Our Changemaker of the Week, Linda Shockley, is bridging communities by helping keep that history alive. Tell us about uh, the historical significance of Lawnside because this is right across the bridge for us and it really has so much significance and many people are unaware of that. Yes, this community was organized in the early 19th century. We have uh, people here who trace their families to folks who escaped along the Underground Railroad from slavery and settled in this community. Um, It had a strong African Methodist Episcopal Church and also uh, proximity to members of the Society of Friends who manumitted people that they had enslaved and also became uh, very active abolitionists. And so one of those abolitionists was Peter Mott, right? Tell us about Peter Mott and the Peter Mott House. Peter Mott was a preacher for the AME Church, it's called Snow Hill Church, at its inception and eventually became Mount Pisgah African Methodist Episcopal Church and following uh, the Reverend Bishop Richard Allen from Philadelphia. And so he took people in his wagon to the Friends or Quakers in Haddonfield and in Morristown, which would be uh, Burlington County today. So we have families who can tell us the stories of their ancestors and who have also been able to document them. As a matter of fact, a Smiley family settled here in the early 1800s. They were freed by their enslaver in Virginia and came to New Jersey, settled here, and became um, really leaders of the community. As a matter of fact, Charles Smiley wrote a book, the only book about Lawnside, called A True Story of Lawnside that was published in 1921. So that's a proud heritage that we uh, promote and that was taught to us in school by our teachers, some of whom were descendants of families who escaped to freedom. I think it's so interesting because, you know, until a few months ago when I first visited the house, I I had actually never learned this in school. What kind of education is being done to sort of bring more awareness to this important historical place right here in our region? So we're putting on programs and inviting people to register and sign up. Uh, For instance, to hear from the Smiley family, we're going to have another program with the families that uh, of uh, former mayors of the town. Uh, Lawnside was incorporated by the legislature in 1926 and became at that point the only incorporated African-American municipality north of the Mason-Dixon line. That's uh, a, a milestone in itself. Other communities are in in the South, in Mississippi, in Florida, and um, North Carolina. Um, And then you look further to the West to places like uh, Nicodemus, Kansas, and so on. Um, But uh, we're we're pretty singular in that we're um, a self-governing community of African-Americans. Uh, dated to 1926. And, you know, I know that you all have encountered some challenges, the city itself and and the house, right? So tell us about um, those challenges. Well, the house is 176 years old. So it was built in around 1845. And having it placed on the National Register of Historic Places is an honor, but it also requires following the standards of the Secretary of the Interior. So nothing can be made of vinyl or uh, plastic or aluminum or any of those kinds of things. So we have to be very careful. Our roof is uh, wood cedar shingles. Uh, After 20 years, uh, they need to be replaced. The siding is wooden. That needs to be painted repeatedly and in some cases be 
repaired and replaced. The windows, the doors, and the, the bulkhead doors all need that attention. And recently, um, our uh, furnace uh, was not functioning properly or safely. So we had to um, replace that as well. Um, and all of these things cost money. So the construction on the house amounts to about $100,000. And then there's the additional cost of the uh, heating and air conditioning system, which will be any, uh, up to $20,000. And in light of COVID, we want to make sure that we have the right uh, kinds of systems in place to handle and clean air in the event and when we do reopen to the public so that people can actually tour the house. So we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of, of dollars in, re in repairs that are needed um, really to, to save this house and to keep it operated and to keep it around. So you all have had some assistance. Um, uh, yeah. Tell us about that. So we've received funding. Uh, we have a matching grant from the New Jersey Historic Trust, which is um, funded by taxes, state money, and that is a, a matching grant. So we have to expend money in order to get uh, money back in order to keep uh, moving the project forward. And we're also struggling to hold on to our identity. Um, so many things are happening in terms of uh, development, um, people aging out of the community, because we do have very old families, you know, when you move into suburban areas and older communities, you start to have those shifts and changes. So there's a lot of house flipping going on um, and all of those kinds of things that make it um, difficult or a struggle for organizations and, and to establish our identity. We hope to keep educating people out in the community as to the history and the heritage, even as they come to the town. Because some people, frankly, don't, don't know the history. They just think it's a nice suburban community to come and settle in. With all of the assistance that you have had, you still need more money, right? Oh, um, yeah particularly with this house, because it means so much to people. It was, it was a safe haven. It was a harbor for people who were escaping the horrors of slavery and, and the lack of freedom and self-determination. So uh, we need to plan in perpetuity for its care. You know, you said something important that this is, this is a really important place. It was a place of refuge. Um, and it has all of this essence and significance at, right here in our region. What is at risk if you were not to meet this goal and be able to raise this money to keep the longevity um, of this place going? Well, I don't want to put that in the atmosphere, but there were documentaries I remember as a child talking about African-American history. And one of the programs uh, subtitled was lost, stolen, or strayed. And, and we just don't want to lose anything more. We don't want to lose any uh, tangible things, certainly, but also the intangibles, these stories. So we, we have to do the oral histories, but we also have to have places and landmarks that people can see that testify to this history. This is one of the few towering monuments that we have that celebrates freedom as opposed to celebrating enslavement and bondage. And so it's, it's really important that we keep it alive and that we think about different ways that we can use it. And we couldn't use it if it weren't here. We couldn't use it if there were just a plaque on the street. And, um, uh, you know, we want to put, we want to have plaques and we're grateful to have uh, historical markers and signs on the grounds, but we want the grounds there. You know, one side, as I said, is only 1.6 square miles, but we have, in addition to the Mott House, the Mount Peace Cemetery, which is a resting place for over a hundred uh, Civil War soldiers. And we have our um, elementary school that was built in 1915. It's a beautiful uh, classical brick building 
where generations of people went to school. So these things are um, all around us, but if we don't tell these stories, then there's a possibility that this history could be erased for generations to come. Tell people how they can find out more about, you know, the Lawnside Historical Society and the Peter Mott House. www.petermotthouse.org. Send us messages um, and look at our website and we'll be glad to accommodate people. We appreciate all your support. Well, that's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you know a person, place, anything making a difference in your community, let us know. We're always looking for our next changemaker. You can tweet me at A-R-L-E on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me, Raquel, on air. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. 